0: Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pick this back up. It's really an amazing uh, book, chapter. Uh, We left off at verse 19. We read all the way through it. Paul has revealed an order. So let me just kind of reiterate that order to you. He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love to all the saints, I cease not to give thanks to you making mention of you in my prayers. He's talking about his prayers for the saints there. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And so at this point, Paul, having taken us through a systematic approach to what he hoped believers would come to understand of God's intentions and purposes for them, he now finishes the chapter by saying by finishing up by saying now what God has done in Christ. That's what we're gonna be talking about today. He's talking about I had a prayer and, and the prayer was that you would do these things and this would happen for you and you would have this realization and now the rest of it is what God has done in Christ. So, and that's why he adds, he finishes at verse 19, according to the working of God's power, his power, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world, that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and has given him to be head over all things in the church, which is the fullness, excuse me, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So, really quickly, let's recall the topics that I just have to do it because they're so important that we covered last week. Um, Paul says at verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you. And we could read this Ephesians, speaking to us. Paul prays that the God of glory would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. Those things. Spirit of wisdom, revelation of knowledge of him. That's what he prays for. And then he says, kind of, and if he gives you that, the, the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. You have the spirit of wisdom, the revelation of knowledge of him, and your eyes of understanding open. That's, that's understanding what life in this world and your everything's about. And then he says, if that happens, or when that happens that you may know what is the hope of His calling on your life. God has a hope in His calling on your life. And what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? That you will come to understand that there's an inheritance God has for you as one of His own. And you have to kind of choose. Am I going to believe that and live to that? Or am I going to live for today, which I can only see what's before me now, and do that? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power? to us who believe, uh, toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. And that brings us to verse 20, which he, this is our text for today, God wrought in Christ when he, God, raised him, Christ, from the dead and set him, Christ, at his own, God's own, right hand in heavenly places. So he takes us and he says, this is what I hope for you. And it's going to come to you by God's power. And this power God has, and he starts assigning to what God has done in Christ. And then he says, and in doing that in Christ... He has placed Christ and he ends with far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. Verse 22, and has put all things under his feet and has gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, it says, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So I submit to you that what we are reading here is Paul's attempt, and it's a good one, at showing that God is willing and therefore capable of giving human beings wisdom, revelation, that'll open our eyes as human beings in this in this world that just doesn't come naturally to understanding, which enables us to know what the hope is for his calling us, the inheritance he has for his children, and which is... Uh, What is the and what is excuse me and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward those who believe? Now we lose that sometimes as believers. We forget that God has a power that's in us, exceeding power that is bringing about what He wants and hopes for us. We forget that, and then now He then likens it to which He, as I said, God wrought in Christ same power that he's that he rots that he gives to believers on earth is this by the same power that he raised christ up from the dead that's what paul says and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above principality and power and might and all those things he says so having done this with his son we are therefore i'm going to just put it this way entering in behind him His son is the one that he brought from the grave who lived the life of having the fullness of God, the power of God in him to overcome sin and death and temptation and everything else. As the first mortal to do that, we enter in behind him in faith, looking at Christ. And we say, we are going to follow in behind him. He opened the way for us into this kingdom to be part of God's family. And that is the model that the scripture is giving us here. So up to verse 19, Paul was speaking for believers whom he was praying for, as you know. But at verse 20, he shifts and he starts talking about the power that God will give to believers, does give to believers. It's the same power he not only gave to his son, but he used to raise his son from the grave. And there's an important parallel to that, and we talked about that. And and then from this point forward, he talks about this, kingdom that christ is over having been raised from the grave by the power of god the only person to have died and come back and live forever from the grave resurrected uh the first person not the only person but the first person so the power of god that raised his son from the grave we said last week is the same power that raises us up to new life while we're alive We're dead in our own fleshly ways, and when you believe on Christ and receive him, that same power God raises us up to new life. And I attest to that in my own life. I would be a walking dead man without Christ in my life. And that's why I'm so ardently do what I do because of what he did in my life. I know what it's like to be in the grave dead, and that is an ugly picture. And so, and then, but Paul is saying is that the same power that God wrought in Christ he, he, what is that word? He rots, he writes, he puts in us. Creates. He creates in us. He gives to us and gives us the power to walk in a new life. So your former woman who would just, you know, witch out the neighbor for letting her dog run on your lawn, God has given you a power to rise up to new life and to say, okay, I'm not going to let that overwhelm me. I'm going to do it God's way. The way Jesus, how would Jesus handle a dog on his lawn? And he would curse it to death. No, just kidding. Just kidding, Michelle. So uh, how would he do it? And that's what's in us, that power, okay? Paul appears to want to illustrate to us, the reader, the fact that God, that if God does not step into the life of a human being, we will all be like Christ, if he didn't raise him from the dead. If God doesn't step into your life as a believer, we would be like Christ, not raised from the dead. We would be the walking dead. That's why when Jesus, uh, they came to Jesus and said, hey, let me go bury my father first. His reply was, let the dead bury the dead. And that sounds really callous, but what he was saying was not ignore funerals, but he was saying the people who are for this world We are on a mission here for the the world to come. Let those who are concerned about this world bury their dead. You come with me. Don't use that as an excuse. So there is a fantastic connection between the life-giving power God uses in us as believers uh, to how he raised his son. From verse 19 to 23 and then out into chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, which I believe are strictly connected The main principle appears to be the power God gives to renew human beings. Uh, And it's the same power he used to raise Jesus from the grave and to exalt him far above everything, set him on his right hand and far above principalities, powers, all of this stuff, right? Because Paul connects us, our redemption, our renewal, our regeneration as believers, however that comes, it can come incrementally and slowly in your life. It can become suddenly in your life. However it works in your life, that um, there's that connection between our rebirth and Jesus' resurrection. All right? So, uh, and and it's related to our becoming joint heirs with Christ. Because remember, we're following in behind him as believers on him. He set the way, he opened the door, he's the primary archae, he's the first force, he's the one, he's done it and that's what Paul is finishing up with here. We are following in behind him having been raised to new life too. Is the point. As our he's our archae, our primary source. He is the first form, he's the alpha and the omega. He set it up. Uh, God set it up through him, Christ. So this is the intention of God and the salvation of human beings, to to make his creations not just reborn, but sons and daughters. This is what he is, because Jesus was his only begotten son. His intention is to make us joint heirs with him, sons and daughters, by and through his power in us, so that we walking through this life will learn. And it's hard. You're making day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute choices of how you're going to approach this life, not necessarily what you do, we all have to do things in this life, but how you're going to approach the doing of. So now, the power of God uses to us, where Paul continues, which he wrought in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Um, I wanna emphasize this last line. When he raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead i want to point that out when jesus christ was dead have you ever thought about that jesus died jesus was dead for three days his apostles believed he's dead and gone the ministry's over he didn't have the victory we thought he would he's not going to bring his kingdom to us we're not going to reign over the romans he was dead that's why peter said i'm going fishing That's what Peter said. I'm going back to the pole and the the, the nets. This deal's done, right? It's something we gloss over without too much thought, but it's really important to assimilate into your mind this fact that if we are to comprehend what God did in and through His only Son, if you want to comprehend what God did in and through His only Son, You have to comprehend that he died, all right? God made him flesh of a woman born under the law, complete human being on our behalf and allowed him to die on our behalf. Spiritually on the cross, spiritually I believe on the cross, darkness over the world, and then physically. He died first spiritually and I think he came back his spiritual life on the cross. It was a moment when, when, when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that was the spiritual death his son experienced. And then he experienced the physical death on our behalf. This fact does not, it shouldn't diminish him in our eyes. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the living God, God with us. It shouldn't diminish it at all, but it ought to help us realize what God was working out in and through him his son that's what he was doing he was working out everything necessary to bring children and joint heirs into the kingdom thereafter and so this mortal man on behalf of all mortals that's why i put him as the primary archae, the the alpha and the mega he is the first of all mortals uh in and through his obedience and his righteousness out of love for God, the first great commandment. He, our first arche, loved God consummately. No man could sway him to any other side. So he became the primary form that what God worked through to set up and establish what he was doing. He made it possible by the fact that God was his father and that God was fully present in him as a mortal man fully present from before birth we have that right and so through this inconceivable achievement uh through the flesh of a man born of a woman with the mind will and emotion of you and i he had the same things god was able to then take human beings through the gauntlet of our human experience because of our primary source having overcome it and done it, those who believe on him are able to be drawn into right with him for what he's done. And um, he becomes the true head of all humanity as a result, as we're gonna read in a second. Jesus of Nazareth had to be born of a woman. He had to grow and mature through the normal processes of human beings as a means to have true victory. Otherwise, it would have been a false victory in my estimation. God would not have been just. He wouldn't have overcome material, uh, physical elements of the human race if he just magically snapped his fingers. He did it through a flesh and blood who could die son. He was, Jesus was not born the finished work of God, the way he was resurrected to being the finished final work of God. He wasn't born that way. He was born with God in flesh, learning obedience through the things he suffered. Hebrews chapter 5, 9, I think. Learning obedience through the things he suffered. For what? For God's purposes and for us. It makes what he did just unbelievable. So it's not surprising that in the face of this monumental task and his victory over it, that God would take his human son, raise him from the grave, and set him, as it says, at his right hand. And we're going to talk about what that means in a second. Which is setting it, well, I'll just talk about it now. It's setting him at the highest place any being that's ever been in flesh and blood could possibly be. Equal to, same playing field as God. Okay, That's what we have in Christ Jesus. So the, this promise by God to place the Lord at his right hand is all through, not all through, it's in the Old Testament, and it's cited many times in the New Testament. In fact, it's the most cited Scripture in the New Testament, is how God would someday set His Son at His right hand of power. Uh, In fact, if you want to know, at the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching to 3,000 Jews, And at one point he says to them, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which you now see in here, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but said himself, and this is the most quoted passage, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. It's kind of heavy and we're going to get to it before we wrap it up. The right hand among Jews doesn't mean what it means to us. It doesn't, it doesn't mean um, literally at my right hand. I know that's how we think of it and that's how it's pictured. When Stephen saw uh, Jesus on the right hand of the glory of God, he saw the glory of God and then he saw Jesus on the right hand of power. That's what Stephen said when he was being stoned. But it denotes the power of God. That. That's what it means, that the power of God set him at his right hand. So the line best means you have all my power, God says, until I make all of your enemies your footstool. There's an until in that. And so according to John 17:5, you remember this. Um, this was a position of power of the word of God that was, re, that was given him again once he passed through mortality. Let me explain. In, in John 17 5, um, Jesus says, Grant me the glory I had with you before the world was. And give me that that is far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world and the world to come. Whatever it is worth, this is how I understand it. And I could be wrong. You might have a different idea. But the way I see it, reading scripture, is that as the word of God, pre pre incarnate Christ, before he took on flesh, as the word of God, was consummate in power. Why? Because he was the word of God. And so when God said, Let there be light, when God said, let there be light. There was light and the darkness fled from the light. That's consummate power above all things, all principalities, everything. When God spoke, his word went out and did. And then we read that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus says, give me the glory I had before, he was talking about the glory as, the, as your word. When, and we don't understand that. But as God speaks, that word was done. If he said mountain flee, mountains fled. Whatever he said, it was done, right? So God said, by his word, let there be light. The darkness couldn't withstand it. Um, So it's by his word, everything was created. That's how we understand it as Christians. And there's debate over whether it was creatio ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, or if it was, Uh, out of other things that were there before. There's a huge debate even among Christians on that. But God says it, and it happens, right? So this was the glory Yeshua, unincarnate, had with God before he was born. He wasn't called Yeshua then. He was called the Logos of God, the Word of God. In and through the incarnation now, when the Word of God Whatever that is, something very powerful and beautiful and mighty and light and above all things, when it speaks, it happens, became flesh. Became flesh and dwelt among us. These attributes of power were mitigated. They were limited. They still worked. He could say something and it still could happen. Disease, leave that woman. Blindness, leave this man. Devils, do this. He had power, but it was in some cases uh, limited in the fact that he was was tempted by his flesh. He he suffered death. He had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. So by condescending from being the equal power of God to say things and it all happening and taking on flesh like us, he became something a little lower than the angel scripture says. And he had to go through that gauntlet of humanity in order to overcome and become the primary arche, where then when he enters heaven after his death, where God raised him up, he had everything he had before and more. Now he took the human element into the heavens. Now he took flesh and bone and blood or whatever it was into the heavens on behalf of us, the primary form. And, and, and so he allowed humanity then, through faith in Christ, through the power of God, to have access to the living God, which was not accessible before. We were, we were not worthy. We could not do it. There was a gap between God and us, a chasm that could not be broached. But through Christ, the human, full of God, came, the Word of God made flesh, overcame it for us, and entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all with His blood as a high priest for us. And those who are His, they enter into that realm, the new Jerusalem. They go into the presence of God because of Christ. That's how important He is. To bring us into the presence of God. You see? So, but while he was on this earth pain had a a hold on on the word of god made flesh when he hit his hand with a hammer that hurt when he offered up his flesh by the power of god and to die that hurt and it hurt that his will wasn't able to be met he said hey if we don't have to do this let's not do it but not my will yours be done that hurts And so it hurts us as his followers too to say we love Jesus. He's our Lord and our King and our Master. Okay, then when the lady's dog comes on your lawn, do you really love him? Will you die and hold your tongue and and change your heart toward the dog and the woman? That hurts. Everything we're doing in his name hurts because it's not what our flesh wants. Our flesh wants something else. Jesus' flesh wanted something else, tempted in all things. So he suffered through uh, suffering. He learned obedience is what Hebrews says. So he is the archae form that took us through. No man, no woman could do it. There would be no other who could possibly do it. It had to be the word of God made flesh in his only human son to do this for us. That's why we worship him. That's why we look to him as, as God with us. That's why he's our savior and our Lord and our king, because God through him, God through him is made all in all, is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Before God was all in all, but he didn't, because he's a good God, he couldn't get his, his will done in people who didn't want it. Now, or even people who did want it, they couldn't keep the law perfectly. So Jesus coming, we're talking miracles of miracles, King of kings, Lord of lords, leading the way as the arche into the heavens. So, but that's why it wasn't until after his life, death and resurrection. And Paul says this, that God says, this is my beloved son. Now he meaning in this, sense, Paul says, God said that then because it was after his resurrection that Jesus really fully became everything he was intended to do in flesh, not what was in him. That's the word of God, remember? Okay, so the general sense and meaning of this verse is that the Lord Jesus was exalted by God now in the highest possible place of dignity by his right hand of power. God took his right hand, which is the power of God in the Hebrew, and took him and said, okay, you have done it. Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, born of a man, flesh and bone, but my son, spiritually filling you, the fullness of God in you, you have chosen to do it. You've overcome it, right? That's what gives us explanation of Philippians 2.9, if you're following along. It says, wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. That is given. God is giving that to him because of what he has done. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth. That's having total domination over everything. That every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, that is how big This is. We also read in Colossians 2 8 through 12. Beware lest anyone spoils you through philosophy. Philosophy was huge when this was written, it's huge now. That they spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That's what he says for in christ dwells the fullness of the godhead bodily and you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power in whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands how do you have a circumcision made without hands it's when god comes in and he men and women circumcises the hard heart the hard heart that wants to kill the woman with the dog on your lawn God comes in, circumcises that, approach her a different way. That's how he's working in us. Put off the body of sins, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And there Paul likens again the resurrection of Christ from the grave, which is a really important reason why he was resurrected that way, and our coming to new life letting God in and to teach us how to become more like his son. Here in Ephesians, we see Paul striving to express what is inexpressible, really. He's doing a really good job, far better than I could do or anybody else I know, but the utmost, the highest, the most lofty concepts of heavenly dignity Paul is trying to bring in Christ here in the last part of chapter one And yet we can't forget that the purpose in Paul attempting this description is to show, remember, is to show the very same God works that power in us as believers. And it's really subtle, you guys. He doesn't take us over like a demon. He, he, he works through us to the most gentle, kind, long-suffering ways. And he is working us. And it's painful because you don't know where it's headed. You're walking in faith. You're hoping there is God. You hope there's a heaven. But slowly along the way, he is working in you. That's how a tender uh, uh, husbandman of a vineyard would work with the grapes. They don't go in there with a machete and chop things out. They tenderly work through the vines to bring about more fruit. And that's what scripture is talking about. So rather, so whether in raising Jesus from the dead or raising us from our sinful flesh to spiritual life, which is an ongoing daily process, it's all by the power of God. That's the point Paul makes. And he's gonna continue that on next week in chapter two. Don't dismiss it. Don't dismiss the power of God in your life as a believer. Don't dismiss it realize you have an identity in him. That's your real identity. It might be really small because you're a new believer or you're uh, an immature believer who's never grown or it could be bigger, but you have an identity that is you are a son and daughter or daughter of God. And in that identity, you see yourself and live your life. When you choose to ignore that identity and see the flesh, you will feed and live by that flesh. And the results are just, they're just not good. It's not that God stops being your father and you stop being his son and daughter. You just wind up in, in, in not good places because you're his. And remember, we've learned that God chastises those he loves. You know what that means? He lets you feel pain. He lets you experience discomfort. That doesn't seem like a very nice God. I want one who gives me castles and rubs my feet at night. That's not our God. Because he loves us as our God, he disciplines those who are his. And Paul says, if he doesn't discipline you, if you're not on his chart of being disciplined in life, you're not his. He says, you are a bastard. That's what the word he uses in the New Testament. So just remember this, that's Paul's point, okay? So Jesus was dead in the graves because of sin, our sin, by the way, and God raised him up We're all in the very same thing. I know I'm going above it. And now Paul begins to give specifics. He raised Christ up far above is the first two words at verse 20, uh, which is translated from a compound word that means not merely above. It's not like ants, animals, man, angels, Jesus. It's all those other things down here. Jesus is up at the roof far above everything else. We're not talking about this relational, well, we're human and he was human and I'm gonna die and he's my brother and it's like this. It's so far above everything else. Why? He gets it. He got it. He did it. God in him, the man. So, um, and then he, he says a word far above all and it's a word that's very important to me personally. Principality, he says far above all principality. And in the Greek, that word is arche, arche. And it means the first, the foremost, archeologists are the study of first fossils, forms, architecture, the study of first forms, primary, archetype, the, the primary form of something. We get what arcs are. And so he's the arche. And that means there is no darkness, dominion, ruler, king, president, rank, army, forces, waves, wind, universe above him, nothing. Why is this so important to me personally? Because I came to see early in life and I started early assessing this, the failure in my teachers in school, not that I didn't love them or appreciate them, but they weren't omniscient. The failures of my parents, they were not perfect. The failures of my leaders and scouts or the church or government, anything, rock stars, movie stars, heroes, all of them dirt when it came to infallibility. And when I came to see Christ as my arche, truly my arche, that resonated to me. That's one of the things that caused me to change. He is my arche. And so, therefore, I am a Christian anarchist. Christian first. Christ is my arche. I have no other archaic. I'm an anarchist. I don't let any other thing. I don't care if, if anyone came, anything came to give me anything or ask me anything or tell me to do anything, and it was not Christ, phenopoly to you. Now Christ wants us to obey government so I'm not anti-government. I'm not a secular anarchist but he is my king and that's why I am a Christian. Always remember that first, anarchist. I don't have any other archa but Christ. That's what I'm saying in that title. That's why when when Paul raised far above all arches, there it is baby right there for me. And principalities and power, might and dominion. He uses the biggest Greek words here to describe this, over all arches, all exosia, which means force or privilege, privilege or force, Uh, dunamis, which means miraculous power, showing that even dark sides can have miraculous power. He's far above all dunamis in the Greek, far above all power, and uh, kuriates, which is dominion, which means the superiority and mastery of government. He is above all superiority and mastery of government, dominion, uh, ex uh, curiates. So, and above every name that is named. And now listen, he says, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, Paul said this prior to the Old Testament ending. The Old Testament, uh, the temple was still standing, The law was still in place with many of the Jews. Uh, All this stuff was still going on. And the fullness of the age to come had not come in. So that's why the King James translates this, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. But world is not world there. It's not cosmos. It's aeon. So Paul could have said Gehei, Oikomenia, cosmos. He used none of those. He used aeon. So what he really says is every name that is named, not only in this age which was still part of the old covenant because the temple was still standing, and the age to come. What age was that? When God would level everything of the old world out, gone completely to the dust at the coming of Christ, then the new age begins, which is one of faith in the spirit and not of material religion. And so... He says, Jesus has a name that is above every name, not only in this age, meaning he's not only above Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, any name of our age of the Old Testament. None of the, he's above all of those names. So you Jews who are holding David up as the king or Moses as the establisher of the law, his name is above every name of this age and of the age to come, meaning anything that's gonna come after this age is wiped out. Now, just one point, I just have to touch on it. In Hebrews 9, 8, God says that the age to come cannot be put in place until the first tabernacle, as long as the first tabernacle is still standing. That's Hebrews 9, 8, check that out. As long as the first tabernacle, talking about the temple there in Jerusalem, is still standing, we would not have manifest to us the age to come. That's why that temple has to fall completely and be routed for the age to come. Just something for you to understand. Paul continues describing how powerful Jesus Christ is through his Father, adding a really set of important set of passages, and it wraps us up for today. And has, God has, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So let's take this line by line. First of all, Paul says that God has put all things under his feet. God has taken Christ Jesus of Nazareth, overcoming everything in the flesh for us as the the word of God made flesh. And then God has taken him and set him above, put all things under his feet. Now, this is really interesting because it's really saying the same thing as Christ is high above everything. It's just a reiteration when he says he's put everything under his feet. If Christ is high above everything, then obviously everything's under his feet. So it's really just a reiteration of the same thing there. But then he adds this strange line, and God gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now, Paul has plainly made it clear that Christ is above everything. We've just talked about that. Everything, everything, everything. But then he says, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church. Why even add that? If he's over all things, he's obviously over the church. Well, maybe not so. The remark is unique. In verse 20 and 21, the language appears to say that God has put Christ above everything in the universe or the universes, there's nothing over him anywhere in those things, but Paul chooses to get more specific and reiterates that he's not only done that in the whole universe, but he just makes it clear, but he has made him the head over the church. And for some reason, Paul feels this is important to distinguish, to add, to reiterate not just over the whole universe, but also the church. He's telling us something there. I'm not really sure fully what that is. Um, but the church is, the word is ecclesia in scripture. And it means the gathering of the called out. He's, he's placed him as the head. Look at my fat head here. He's, he's placed him, Christ, as the head of the church, of the, of the called out. He has established that God has placed Jesus over all things, but it appears that he is saying even over, even over the sons and daughters of God, the called out, the ecclesia. That's not God's purview directly. That is Christ. He's the head of the church. So what is this church that he's talking about? It's believers. Wherever they were on Christ, However that comes, I'm going to add, people who choose faith and love, it all comes down to Christ. Absolutely, it's him. And so believers who follow Christ in faith and love, truly from the heart, who have God in them by virtue of his sacrifice, they are the called out, the ecclesia, the church. And Jesus said, it's by their love you will know them. By their love, you'll know them. The called out, the ecclesia. He did not say by their doctrine. He did not say by their practices. He didn't say any of that. He says, you will know my disciples by their love. Why? Because when God dwells in the heart and the, and the believer allows him to work, then people know they're different because they operate in a love arena that is not known in this world, which is selfless. And, and good and godly and, and all those things. So relative to this line that he's the head of all things in the church, I'm convinced that he speaks to the legitimate, genuine church. Here at campus, everybody's truly a Christian. But other churches, they don't have true Christians. i <laughs> just totally kidding. What I'm meaning is that churches, he's not the head of churches, He's not the head of institutions. He might use them and work through them, but he is definitely head of those who have been called out in those churches. Whoever it is, the pastor, the deacons, the, the children's woman who's running the music, the pastor, anybody who is really his from the heart, by him living in them through love, that is the church he's talking about. And that is, he is the head over them, over them, right? And then Paul adds, which is his body which is his body so now we have Christ as the head and God has made him head over the ecclesia the called out and then Paul adds that church is his body okay so now we take all the true genuine believers around the world from any church that they go to who are true believers and they are part of his body he's the head the mind the central thinking system for the body and he is over that gathering of, of believers so much so that we, if you're part of it, if I'm part of it, make up his body on the earth. So you can imagine a head in the space and you have a body over the earth and that body is made up of believers, which is Christ's body. Now, why Christ's body? Um, when Jesus was alive on earth, he controlled his body. He controlled it to the point where he could walk on water. He, could, he did anything with that physical body while on earth. Of course, it was subject to pain and temptation and death. But still, while on earth, even in a feeble state as a, in the human flesh, he was in control of his body. And so as believers now by faith, coming to Christ by faith and living genuinely in love for others, the head in the heavens, Christ Jesus, His body is still in control of Him, which means it conforms and comports to the things it's going to do that He wants it to do. And it can't be affected and taken down by anything else. Remember, He's over the whole universe. And so what I take that to mean is that this radical suggestion is that true Christians are controlled, not without their will, but they are governed and moved about in their life by Christ as their head. And we are part of his body. And you're doing the thing, if you're the hand of the body, if you're the elbow, you're doing the thing that he needs in his body over this earth, whatever it is. And Paul talks about that, I'm not gonna go into it, where he says there's very beautiful parts of the body and there's very ugly parts of the body. And the ugly parts usually are more beneficial. That ugly pulsing purple heart valve that's all twisty, that's far more important than a pretty nose. Right, So he goes into all that about the body of Christ. And I believe truly that those who are of his body, not just the churches, but those who were conformed to his will to love, they're known by that and they're governed by him as the head. And they submit to his will because they're his. So Paul concludes with a statement, which I don't understand what it means relative to him. And so I'm going to leave it with you guys to think about the fullness of him his body the church that filleth all in all the fullness of him that filleth all in all what that means relative to him being the head over the body that is the church that's his body I'm not sure how that works the only reason I say that is all in all is used in scripture in several places and here's one I'm just going to top it off for you as we end that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, and when all things shall be subdued unto Christ, okay, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So we have then, we've just read how Paul has described here in Ephesians that everything's under Jesus' feet. He is the head of the church that he's governing. But here in 1 Corinthians, and there's other places too that speak of it, uh, Paul and the writer of Hebrews say, and when everything has been subdued, then the son himself will be subject to the father so that God will be all in all. And I'm going to leave that mystery for you to think about and we'll talk about it next week or through any questions you might have right now and we'll uh, get on with our partay. Questions, comments, please. Do we have a Vanna? We do. And we have a prayer list? Excellent.
1: Ooh.
2: I thought you said that. I guess I'll ask a question. So this is where it gets difficult for me to understand God the Father, who is spirit and light and fire, doesn't have a body or maybe even a gender, he's just God. And then you have Jesus with a resurrected spiritual body standing on his right hand or on the throne with him. You're gonna to have to clear that up for us as to how that becomes God, one God. I don't know, don't know. It's don't so hard, I can't, it it's, yeah. I can't figure it out either.
0: I can't figure it out either. But all I know is that it seems like, because of Revelation talks about one on the throne. There's only one on the throne in Revelation. And it seems to me, and I this is just total conjecture, it seems to me that the fullness of God that he talks about dwells in God, Christ bodily, that Christ is the one on that throne with the fullness of God in him, and that's what we see and relate to as humans from that point forward. That's what it seems like to me, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, and God living within us as believers, he dwells within us, so it's just a mystery to understand how he can dwell within each one of his individual body parts of the church. I know. And then in his son, and then, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. We, we tried to comprehend it, but it's just beyond our limits beyond. of understanding.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: good point, Danny. It is beyond. Anybody else,
1: David? This is David. Uh, on these last two verses of of this chapter where it says uh, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church comma which is the body so and the fullness of him that filleth all things the church is the fullness of Christ because he's got he's drawn them to him and uh, Anyway, that's how I read that. That the, yeah. the comma is referring back, so the second part is referring back to what it becomes the fullness of Christ, and it's all the members. It's the fruit of Christ that has become Him. I see.
0: So that it's the church that is the all-in-all all that's being full.
1: It's Christ being all-in-all all through the fruits of Him. Of Him. It makes I, sense to me. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I read it. That's at least one way to read it. It is. Okay. I, I like it. Some of these things are tough. They are. I, I like it. What?
0: Yeah, they are. They're circular. Anybody else? And while the microphone's coming to Eric, is there anybody in this audience who's being baptized today that we may be using our baptismal font from what to fulfill my grandson's wishes Uh and that's we put hot dogs in there Uh and everybody do where you Uh put your face in to try to (laughs) capture them with your teeth bobbing for hot dogs Uh all right let's pray and then let's fellowship uh there's everything just have yourself out we'll get cooking the hot dogs if you want to stay around uh and let's have uh, some fellowship if you'd like all right, Lord, we just uh, thank you for life and grateful that we have minds. You've given us all minds, you've given us will, you've given us emotions, uh, the, the, the soul, and you've made us in your image. And you've given us the power to choose and think and reason through scripture and we're responsible. And that's a good thing. That's not a frightening thing. You're, you're allowing us to grow and to challenge and question and wonder. Uh, even doubt. And so we just pray you'll strengthen us in this journey to figure it out. You've put us down here as sentient beings that think and work, and we're trying to work it out. And so we come together, we read scripture to try to understand, and we pray that your spirit will bless us as we exit here, that we will consider the things that are of you and that are true, and be able to apply them rightfully to our lives, not becoming obsessed or not becoming zealous, but becoming people who look to you in in spirit and truth. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful for the things we learn about him through scripture and by the spirit. We pray you'll bless our activities now, whatever they may be. No harm will come to anybody through the burning elements and sharp knives. And that we'll be able to uh, just relax and uh, enjoy the food that has been provided and uh, thankful for everybody who's participated and we just pray your blessings will be upon us. We'll be better Christians, Lord. That's that's the hope. Better light, better salt as we walk through this world. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, wait. And Lord, Gaylene is having retinal detachment surgery on Tuesday and I pray that you'll bless Gaylene and you'll continue to bless um, um, Dave and Nancy. Bon Tempo and her cancer, and she's undergoing chemo now, and they're trying to fight that. We pray that that will be effective. And then we pray for Jax and Brian and militia as they divorce. And we pray that your spirit will be with them as parents over Jax and that Jax will always look to you and anybody else who's suffering and having struggles in this world, Lord, we lift them up to you now from our hearts in Jesus name. Amen.